Welcome to the New Books Network. A Tempest at Sea, Chapter 1, April 1887. There's something you're not telling me, Ash, said Charlotte Holmes. The night was starless, the sky low and heavy, but spring was beginning to make itself felt as a certain fullness in the air, the swelling of blackthorn buds and the cusp of flowering. Charlotte was warmly wrapped in an Inverness cape, a deerstalker cap on her head. No one who saw her in her masculine attire now, if anyone could see in the pitch blackness, would have mistaken her for the pink silk-clad vixen who had successfully ambushed Lord Ingram Ashburton earlier in the evening. It had been their first meeting since her terribly inauspicious death in Cornwall, where her body was said to have been dissolved in a vat of perchloric acid. Her closest associates had mourned in a manner befitting those who could not publicly acknowledge their grief. But they had also worried in truth as weeks wore on that no news from, with no news from her. Charlotte, even before she had been advised to stay away from her usual haunts following that spectacle on the Cornish coast, had decided on a safe haven, none other than Eastley Park, the country seat of the Duke of Wycliffe, Lord Ingram's eldest brother. The estate's hunting lodge had proved a peaceful abode for her, of course an excellent location in which to lie in wait for Lord Ingram to turn up for his usual Easter visit. And now, after a few highly pleasurable hours becoming reacquainted in his bedroom in the main residence, he was escorting her back to the hunting lodge, as she could not be seen in his quarters come morning, whether as a man or a woman. The night was thick as a wall. She walked blindly, but he had grown up on this estate and ambled along, guiding her with an occasional touch on her elbow or the small of her back. I'll tell you when we're inside, he said in response to his earlier comment, his tone deliberately light. But when they entered the hunting lodge and lit a few sconces, he did not divulge what he kept from her. Instead, he left with a hand candle to make sure that the structure, bigger than her ancestral home, was free from hidden intruders. Charlotte removed her caped coat and prosthetic paunch, strolled into the drawing room and searched out on a settee, the gold brocade upholstery of which was visibly fraying, the hunting lodge, an opulent addition to the estate a hundred and fifty years ago, had not been improved in at least two generations. He returned, handed a biscuit tin to her, crossed the room to a padded chair upholstered in the same worn brocade and leaned against its rounded armrest, one leg straight, the other half bent. He was rarely so informal in his posture, but even so, his shoulders remained open, his weight evenly distributed. He lifted his head and seemed about to speak, but didn't. A single lamp bronzed the antlers mounted above the door and delineated shadows in the hall of his cheeks. Charlotte opened the tin and nibbled at the almond macaroon and waited, though she had already guessed what he was going to tell her. It was not about Moriarty. Her lover was distracted, but not yet alarmed. Still, the matter made him concerned for her safety, a task that required her to leave Eastleigh Park then, a task for Sherlock Holmes, and who could make such a request and be sure that he would, in fact, relay it to her. 
Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, and today I'm here with Sherry Thomas, and we're going to talk about her latest book in her Lady Sherlock series, A Tempest at Sea. Sherry, thanks for being here with me today. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. So this is, as I said, the latest in your series. It's book number seven. So I thought before we got into the book itself, you could maybe... um, and, and, and we can talk about sort of the series itself, but can we talk first about how you got interested in um, writing this Lady Sherlock series and creating Charlotte Holmes and and, and bringing um, it, it's not even a, it's not a contemporary version, right? It's a historical version still, but but making Sherlock Holmes a female. <laughs> oh, right. Um, so I, you know, like most people who read uh, Sherlock Holmes early in life, I was like, "Who? This is so cool." Uh, I grew up in China. And so I read uh, first read Sherlock, uh, Sherlock Holmes translated into Chinese when I was like a preteen. Um, but right around the time I was being introduced to the original story, I came across a copy of the 7% Solution, also translated into Chinese. And for people who are not that familiar with Sherlock Holmes' pastiche, which is, um, which is um, basically Sherlock Holmes stories written by someone other than Arthur Conan Doyle, and there is a ton of it, um, the 7% Solution is sort of like a landmark book uh, in the pastiche. It was like when it came out, it spent like weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, I think it came out in the early 80s or something like that. Um, and it kind of like, even though I was really young, uh, even though I had no literary critique skills whatsoever at the time, as a reader, I just thought it was really cool because in the original canon, um, Sherlock Holmes' drug abuse was just you know, taken as a matter of fact, yeah, he has nothing to do. So he's shooting himself up with, you know, the 7% solution of uh, cocaine. Um, yeah, it was cocaine, right? Um, and, uh, but in the uh, 7% solution, apparently they treated it quite differently. They treated it much more seriously. And he, Sherlock Holmes disappeared for three years. Why did he disappear for this? He was actually in a Swiss rehab, you know, trying to dry himself out um and 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 i remember reading as you know like an 11 year old just thinking wow that actually makes so much sense because like you know he was really druggy and he probably does want to clean out at clean up at some point uh it's just really difficult to imagine that you could just randomly shoot yourself up without somehow the the, the drug from taking over your life um so i always been as interested in what other people wrote about Sherlock Holmes as, you know, what original Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. Um, and then back in 2005, um, I came across uh, Laurie R. King's uh, Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes books, in which she gave Sherlock Holmes, the author gave Sherlock Holmes, an equal female partner, a lot younger, but he's equal in every way, uh, in, in mind, in temperament, in, like, fortitude. Um and I thought that was so cool. And for the very first time, I thought, oh, I would love to write something like this, a, a, a new take on Sherlock Holmes that's, you know, retains a lot of the mystique and um, of, the, of the original, but like totally updated for our time and just very interesting uh, in the creativity and the new world building it brings. Um, but then I thought, oh, um, I'm probably not very good at uh, writing plot because I was just a very new romance writer at the time. I mean, I've been writing romance for a while, but that I had just been bought uh, by a New York house and was about to embark on a career as a romance writer. So I thought, okay, maybe let me hold, hold off on this a bit. And then fast forward a few years to BBC Sherlock. By the time I saw BBC Sherlock, 
the one with Benedict Cumberbatch. And I was like, wow, this is really doing such a great job updating it for the new century and everything. And um, I just love it. And at that time, I just had more confidence in myself as a plotter. And uh, also, I was coming to the end of my ideas of, you know, historical uh, historical romance. I was like, hmm. Um, so I actually, I first proposed this idea to my young adult publisher. And if they had taken it, uh, mine would have been like a girl Sherlock. It would have been a contemporary adaptation. Uh, but they were, they were like, um, we don't think uh, uh, mysteries typically don't sell very well in YA. So then I was like, okay, fair enough, because that's what we're in the business to do, to sell books. If they don't sell very well in YA, then I turned around to my uh, adult publisher and said, how about you guys? And they said, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> they offered me a three-book contract, and, uh, and I thought... If I was going to write for the um, for the adult fiction market, then I might as well capitalize on the fact that I've been writing uh, other uh, novels set in uh, set in the late Victorian period. Fortunately, that's exactly the same time setting as the Sherlock Holmes books. So I was like, okay, I'm already familiar with that time period, and my readers probably expect more historical fiction from me. So let's make this one for the grown-ups. Um, a historical adaptation, except, oh yeah, by the time I, I thought I wanted to write my own, I was looking at BBC Sherlock and it's like, what else is there to be done? You know, they already brought him up to the 21st century. They already, uh, and on, uh, uh, over at CBS on elementary, they already made um, Watson a woman. It seemed like the only thing left was to make Sherlock a woman. I look around, it hasn't happened yet, at least not maybe in fan fiction, but not in traditional publishing. And I was like, great, let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're um i'm gonna guess your YA publishers are probably kicking themselves now because now we have a like YA female sherlock's right we have like you're we a little did. ahead we of did. the time so yeah. they may not be kicking themselves at all they may be thinking great so we avoid like having two YA sherlock holmes adaptation at the same time my YA publisher um actually read by growing up uh, uh lady sherlock and liked them a lot um but i don't think she regrets you know, because it would have come out with the same time, exactly the same time as um, as um, as the other the other one. <laughs> yeah. So this is as you said, this is book seven, and so can you kind of um, set us up? So at this point in your series, um, there's been some issues, and so Charlotte has to go into hiding and has to disguise herself. And so can you kind of, and, and what's a great, and I'll say this too, um, a great thing about this series, at least with this book, is you, if you if you know some of the story of Sherlock, if you know that you don't need to have read all of the books to, to enter into this book, right? But there is some sort of background I'm with this. So can you kind of set us up before we get into the book itself about like sort of what has happened in the past with your characters and with Charlotte Holmes and um, in this world? Uh, well, um, Sh Charlotte Holmes, my uh, titular lady Sherlock, um, kind of became Sherlock Holmes, the consulting detective, because she was kicked out of society, you know, because she is sort of uh, a persona non grata became um, after uh, some random mishaps that, you know, plans that didn't go well. Um, so she was basically not yet out on the streets, but she had run away from home and she was on her own. And she fortunately ran into Mrs. Watson, who took her uh, under her wing 
and uh, put up the finances, recognize this extraordinary talent, which Charlotte herself didn't know what to do with because she is a gently raised young lady who had never been taught how to, you know, monetize her talents. And, but Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Watson had been through life and Mrs. Watson had been on stage. She's not shy to talk about money and how, about how to make a living. So she actually put up the finances. So, you know, Sherlock Holmes, a uh, consulting detective, could open um, its doors and take clients. And, uh, and their conceit was that there's this great genius named Sherlock Holmes, but he is, you know, he has some mysterious and debilitating injuries that he can only like be like next door on his convalescent bed and and Charlotte Holmes plays his sister and Oracle that she's the only one who can communicate with him. And then, you know, she listens to the clients and she takes their problems, you know, inside, you know, inside the bedroom to him to consult, you know, the non-existent Sherlock Holmes and come back and tell them, you know, this is what the great Oracle, you know, the great consulting detective says. Uh, but, you know, it's really all Charlotte all the time. And uh, so, of course, in, in, in a modern day adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, you can't not have Moriarty. So we also have the, the overarching story with this is like Moriarty's shadow slowly creeps into Charlotte Holmes' life. Um, and in the previous book, they actually met for the first time in book six. And so now as a result of everything that's happened up to then, yet, as you said, Charlotte is in hiding. She is kind of lying low. And um, she receives an offer that basically says, if you can do this for the British crown, uh, retrieve a certain document, um, then, you know, maybe we can extend our protection to you a little bit. And then you can go back to living a normal life. Don't have to, you know, hide from Moriarty anymore. And she said, oh, that sounds appealing. Um, so she goes on, um, she goes to a, uh, find this MacGuffin and the MacGuffin leads her onto the RMS Provence, which is headed east toward India and uh, Australia and points further east. And, um, and while she's on this ship trying to find this, um, find this dossier, a murder happens. Now, normally if a murder happens, uh, you would say, let's call Sherlock Holmes to investigate, but she is in disguise. So, her thing is she's trying not to get too caught up in this. She wants to find out what happened, but she cannot have what she's doing on the ship or the fact that she's traveling incognito found out by, you know, the people who, by the um, Scotland Yard investigator who also actually happens to be on board and who's been given charge of this case. So it's a, it's a game of cat and mouse, not only between the detective and the murderer, but between Charlotte and people who are running the, um, the actual murder investigation. Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of things that I really wanted to talk to you about. Like, one is like, like she is she's in disguise, and throughout this, she and Mrs. Watson are both in disguise, um, and are playing these characters, and sometimes they switch off. And so, when you put them in disguise, and when you thought about this, did you also um, think about what are the, you know, in the late 1800s and during this time period? what do can I use to make this disguise realistic, right? We can't, we don't have tons of like prosthetics and all of this we can put on. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, putting her in disguise in this sort of, in this, on this, on sea, right? On this ship that's sort of a captive space and audience. Um, well, um, I, uh, part of, part of the, I, Charlotte is in the, Charlotte is in disguise as a uh, very old lady, or at, least, or at least a lady who isn't that old, but who is very wrinkly. You know, all the wrinkle is kind of to disguise the contours of her own face. And um, and uh, I had uh, 
I was a fan of the uh, Lord of the Rings books and the movies, and I remember watching the uh, behind the scenes on the on the extended cut of the um, of the movie, the DVD, the the big the big ass DVD that you used to be able to buy. Um, and uh, there was a very interesting segment about how they made um, how they made the Rohan King look so old, and then make him go back into a young man again. So the actor is not that old, but how they made him look so old was through a, basically a very a practical effect, not, uh, not, uh, um, not uh, a digital effect. Basically they just use tissue paper and dip in the solution and when it, and stick it to his face. And when it dries, it forms very realistic looking uh, wrinkles. So then I thought I could do something similar. She has a friend who's like a great chemist and, you know, they could come up with a solution like skin tone solution for that. And, um, and so she could disguise herself and, and she's also taking advantage of the fact that people probably wouldn't look too closely at a wrinkly old woman. So <laughs> she's using the fact that, you know, older women kind of sort of become invisible to the general populace also to like make sure her, you know, nobody's looking at her too closely. Right. And so another thing that I really thought was fascinating and appears in this book, and I'm going to assume in the others, some that I haven't read, um, is her family is involved in this. So she has a sister, Olivia, and her mother, who is is quite the character herself. And so could you talk a little bit about this family dynamic that you created for Charlotte and sort of the Holmes family and, and some of these characters? Right. The Holmes family is quite the dysfunctional family. <laughs> the parents kind of hate each other, um, but, you know, must carry on for appearances sakes. And uh, they are both disappointed that they only have daughters. There are four daughters in the family. And uh, we don't, we only meet two of them um, in this book, but there are four daughters. The oldest one's married. The second oldest is um, severely autistic and cannot look after herself, must be looked after all the time. And the third sister's name is Livia. Um, Livia is, uh, uh, plays the traditional Dr. Watson role in the sense that she is Charlotte's chronicler. She's the one who writes the, um, the Sherlock Holmes stories based on Charlotte. And there's Charlotte, who is the youngest. And uh, for the longest time, she was thought maybe she might turn out the same as her second eldest sister, the autistic one, because she also didn't talk and was like very, um, um, was a very odd little girl. Um, but the, the general dynamic is their parents do not like having so many girls and they do not value the girls. And Charlotte has never really cared. She values herself plenty, but... Livia has very much been affected by this disdain that she's received her whole life. So she's the one who has to struggle against parental expectation and scorn, whereas Charlotte, being Sherlock Holmes, does not give a damn. <laughs> she, and her- she, she, she has worth in her own eyes. She doesn't even have to think about her worth. Yeah. And and you have and you found a way to sort of bring Livia and bring Lady Holmes on board and and her mother is really a piece of work, right? Mother, like as, as I was writing it, I realized her mother is the Uber Karen, you know, because yeah. when I was writing this book, Karens were in the news all the time, and I was writing with like, wait a minute, she is like the Uber Karen. Yes, and very much also. Um, uh, 
like dedicated to making people know or think that she has money and she has a societal space and place in these ways. Like she's one of those characters that you really want to hate, um, but you still want to read more of, right? Like you hate her so much, but you want her there because she's a great character. Right. right because <laughs> she's one of those characters who actually does things, even if they're stupid things. <laughs> <laughs> she does things that push the plot along. <laughs> yeah, like holy smoke! I can't believe she did that. <laughs> yes, but you're like, but it makes total sense, and and I love um and having her sort of her um lady and waiting her servants with her, and like knowing like everybody feels bad for everyone around her all the time. We're right, yes, right. Poor <laughs> um poor Livia has to attend dance attendance on her. Um, Charlotte being in disguise, nobody knows she's on the ship. Is fair that <laughs> at least. <laughs> Yes. So you have the so you have this family that you've created and brought in, and you've also um as a romance author, right? Need of course we need a love interest. Well, um, of course. And so can you talk a little bit about that too? And the love interest and and um it seems like uh there has been in the previous they are finally able to at least it, when they're in disguise be together um but that was not always the case so can you talk a little bit about the romance that you bring in right um so uh the romance uh, in this uh, the main romance between uh uh in 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 the series is between uh Charlotte Holmes and uh and uh uh this lovely gentleman named uh Lord Ingram Ashburton uh at the beginning of the series Lord Ingram was actually married um, and so, so sometime in the series, he became a free man. Uh, he already has two children. They've known each other, not their whole lives, but they've known each other since they were teenagers and they've had maintained a correspondence for many years going. And she has always been very interested in him in not necessarily in a romantic sense, but she has always like viewed him as her way to explore sexuality and everything that else that was forbidden, you know, otherwise forbidden to a Victorian young lady. And he has always viewed her as an agent of chaos, which, you know, he correctly did. And, you know, for a long time, he very much wanted to find his place in the hierarchy. He didn't want to abandon the hierarchy as she did. Um, he, he very much wanted to have a place and hold on to it, you know, like to, to be accepted in the world um, by the world he knows. Um, so he viewed her, although he was, I believe he was always being attracted to her. He also viewed her as dangerous and, you know, absolutely not the kind of, you know, woman, anyone ought to, you know, not, not anyone ought not to, but at least he could not get involved with because they seem to want completely different things in life. And so, so that the, the thing that stood between them you know, in the beginning, it would appear to be his marriage, but it's actually a lot more than just his marriage. It's two fundamentally different ways of looking at the world. It's two fundamentally uh, different ways of wanting to live and what you want out of life. And so it is only as, you know, various things happen to him um, and happen to her and happen to them uh, or they do things together that uh, that they change slowly. I think he more than her uh, to come to see that, okay, what he had valued so much, what he had wanted so much, the place in the hierarchy um, may not necessarily be the thing that would make him happy after all, uh, that maybe he would be happier if he actually instead learned to step out of, you know, all the societal expectations on which that had weighed so heavily on him for so much of his life. 
Right. So you have this romance and you kind of mentioned another thing that I thought was interesting is, and I, I think, I don't know if part of this is because they're at sea, we see a lot of um, the class divide, right? And how sort of you can move back and forth, like Charlotte um, and Mrs. Watson had to, were able to sort of in disguising themselves move between sort of the servants quarters and as well as sort of on deck with the pat like with the paying passengers who were there and so can you talk a little bit about that too and, and sort of looking at or being able to balance or use that sort of classified um during this time period um in your novel yeah in the victorian era i think even now in in the uk the class divide is like huge and I think at that time, you know, people, especially I think people of the upper class, the middle class, they just kind of take it for granted that they were better people because of, you know, a lot of them just took it for granted that they were better people because of who their parents were and or who they married to um, or, you know, like at least better than them, whoever that them would be. Um, and I think uh, Mrs. Uh, not Mrs. Lady Holmes, uh, uh, Charlotte Holmes's mother is very much example of that, that sense of like, um, you know, she she not only feels superior to just about everybody on the ship, but like her sense of superiority is part of who she is. If she didn't have that, she would have nothing. Um, because really her finances are precarious. And so there's and there's not only that, but there's also the um the divide between the uh old money and new money. Because we have on the ship a uh Australian millionaire. And his, pe- his, his sister, they're going back to Australia. And the Australian millionaire came from nothing. And his presence is like very much like a thorn in the side for, Mrs., um, for Lady Holmes because, you know, she just couldn't stand it how this man pays her no respect uh, and just like, and that she can do nothing about him because he's rich on his own. He doesn't have to, he, he doesn't need her to employ him or to anything for him. Yeah. Yeah, and there is, as you're talking about too, there, there's this idea that because there's sort of new money and because the sister um, did not have the means growing up um, that automatically we can look at her as a suspect, right? We can look at them as suspects because, um, of course, it would not be anyone with status or class that um, right, we need right. to look at. It's, it's the, the investigation. You automatically look at, you know, okay, the... Uh, I mean, it's, it's no surprise to, to to tell people that you know it's Australian millionaire who got who who was murdered, um, and uh, and and of course the the suspicion immediately fall on those who might need money, who might want his money for themselves. Uh, like uh, yeah, you know people always suspect the 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 the, the people of lower standing, uh, and never you know the people who have proper status. Yeah, no, no, I love No, I was gonna say I don't and I don't I mean I don't know if I loved, but but I really liked um so there was a point where Mrs. Watson befriends um the the sister on deck and and Mrs. Watson then is worried that like would the character she's playing, the person who she's playing in real life, um be bothered by her like Watson befriending this woman of sort of lower status and lower class. And I thought that that is a, is an important commentary and important thing to think about that. I mean, still goes on today, but, but to think about like how, how, just how much that class and status plays out. Oh yeah. Yeah. It like, 
appearances were so important to people back then. I mean, it is still so important to people today. Otherwise, we wouldn't have social media, right? So, social media is basically all about appearances. It's just appearances still so important. Just we're manifesting it in different ways. Right. So, the, so another thing. So you have these characters. You have these great characters. Moriarty is not in the book, but his presence is well known throughout. So his, his you have hands over. Yeah, right. And you've sort of created this huge sort of network of you know for him. So can you talk a little bit about that decision and, and sort of how you've um, made this kind of this this larger uh, you know this larger network of his people his um you know minions i guess <laughs> right um yeah because moriarty uh moriarty in the um in the original canon was actually there only in like three or four stories he was not mentioned very much at all i think he was mainly dredged up so that uh so that arthur conan doyle when he got fed up of writing sherlock holmes stories could just kill off sherlock holmes but of course the popu the 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 Victorian reading population didn't let him do it. They basically more or less forced him to bring <laughs> bring Sherlock Holmes back from the dead. So basically, all we know about um, about uh, Moriarty is that he's this great criminal mastermind. Well, you can't really be called a mastermind, like if all you have is yourself, right? So it kind of implies that he has people who will do his bidding. Otherwise, what is what is he masterminding? <laughs> And so that um, I have set it up so that he is um, kind of at the center of an international web that, you know, he does have his people in Britain, but he's also there on the continent. And I don't quite have it that he has a finger in every pie, but he has enough fingers in enough pies um, that, you know, Charlotte has somehow managed to run into his influence for several books running. Um so, so far, like, until book six, he has been, like, sort of a peripheral character. They kind of run into his influence. They kind of run into his, his people, but they hadn't run into himself. Um, and uh, and so, like, this this whole... The, 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 the Lady Sherlock books are typically very tightly um, connected one to the other. Um, and uh, so, um, so this so far, the books have all been kind of, like, on the Moriarty arc. Like, so how, you know, we keep running into him. So then now the question has slowly, earlier they were trying to avoid him. They were trying to just like, ooh, let's not be any more involved with him, accidentally involved with him. I have to, but now it's slowly turned arc. So like, okay, what can we do to take him down? And uh, this book, although not, um, not in the main concern with Moriarty, still certain things happen to advance the, you know, to advance uh, what they want to do against Moriarty. Right, so it's falling to place. So you've got this. So, so right. So can, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like what you decided to. So we talked a little bit about sort of the canon and how you've sort of adopted some of that. So what else? Like in um, your series, are there certain uh, stories of Sherlock Holmes? Are there certain experiences that you really wanted to? to bring in in a new light or give sort of a new angle to or um or ones that you chose to sort of shy away from and and change well i like in the first book can be the first book in a series a study in scarlet women can 
can be said to be a loose adaptation of A Study in Scarlet because it's also a revenge story. So for later books, you know, at first for book two, I went back to the original canon and said, is there anything I can adapt? And well, first of all, mostly he wrote, uh, mostly he wrote short stories, which are not that easy to adapt into full-length novels. And of his full-length novels, yeah, none of them are particularly in the direction I would like to go to. I don't want to rewrite The, the Hound of Baskerville or anything like that. <laughs> or The Sign of the Four... Um, um, but, um, so then it became, um, so then it became more of the exploration of my own characters. Like it's the Sherlock-ness of Charlotte that is often explored and it's explored. It's, it's interesting to explore that because in a man, you take those characteristics for granted. Uh, but in a woman, that is you know, not only unusual, back then it was considered outre. It was just like, who is this strange, strange woman? Uh, and, you know, why does she think the way she does? Why does she act the way she does? Um, so Charlotte basically has to deal with a lot more than uh, Sherlock Holmes ever did for being the exact same person. And I also wanted to explore, like, how would a woman grow up differently? Like, if Sherlock Holmes was born into a Victorian woman's body, he's not going to grow up into the exact same person simply because he would not have led the same life. Even if you started with the same material, everything you experience in life also make you who you are, right? So he would have had a lot um, more pressure in his life to conform to a certain standard. He would have had a lot more pressure to like be a certain way, act a certain way, get married. You know, like Sherlock Holmes was a confirmed bachelor, like, you know, nobody, at least according to Dr. Watson, nobody ever seemed to have been like banging down his door telling him it is time for you to get married, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, he never seemed to have experienced any of that. But you cannot be a woman back then and not, you know, especially you cannot be a woman from a certain, you know, socioeconomic class where you're not supposed to work, you're not supposed to uh, labor for your own uh, support. So then what choice do you have in life for your livelihood? You know, unless your parents can give you something or you marry another man who promises to support you, you know, for as long as you both shall live. Um, so, you know, all those things, it, the book ends up being more about the exploration of those things than like what Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. Um, but which I think is fine because that's the whole point of um, rewriting these literary classics because we want to, them to reflect our time, not you know, their original time, because they already reflected the original time <laughs> when they were written. <laughs> yes, I loved um, throughout, uh, Charlotte knew that the character, Charlotte loved sweets, but she knew the character um, she was playing would not be eating those. So there was these these lovely moments where um, she was excited to get like that. Her lover had brought her like cake or she would sneak food when people weren't looking. Um, so she right, could right, kind of exactly. have the sweets, like these kinds of things that. Right. Um, these, um, this, this, this series of books is known for Charlotte's uh, gourmandise, you know, her <laughs> appetite. Uh, and I would often introduce various um, uh, baked goods or pastries, you know, into her, you know, not her cooking repertoire because she doesn't cook, but her uh, eating repertoire. And so this time um, someone actually asked, oh, I can't wait to see what new treats Charlotte get to experience in this book. And I had to tell her, this is the book where, you know, Charlotte can't eat that much because the person she's in disguise as supposedly has the appetite of a bird. And so she has to eat very carefully while in public, but in private, sometimes 
as this is a book she gets like uh like office work party leftovers <laughs> Like basically, and the police interrogation, the ship always makes sure that the 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 police officer and his uh, and Lord Ingram, who's acting as his you know secretary and note taker, has enough to eat. And Lord Ingram would steal that and bring it back to his room, and so Charlotte can wolf them down. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Which is great, right? Because you got you get to see that. Like I love that you get to kind of see that playfulness or see those desires in her really having to think about, all right, I need to stay in character all the time, but I also really want to eat something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so also um you put this at sea, right? You put this on a ship, uh, so there aren't uh, many places you can go, many places you can hide. So so she's got she's in disguise and she's stuck on this ship. Um so what why did you choose to um put them on at sea? Uh it's a question I'm still asking myself. <laughs> I, I asked myself that question many times in the writing of this book because um, because it just seemed like, um, you know, she, she was in disguise. Like, what could she do? Um, you know, um, and, and also uh, after six books on land, I kind of wanted them to be somewhere else. And on the high seas seemed like a great idea at the time. I mean, it did turn out to be a great idea. I feel this book is, you know, turned out to be well executed. But while I was trying to figure out this ship, it was so hard to find uh, like naval architecture from the 1880s. Like I could find all kinds of ship, like, you know, uh, deck plans from the 1860s. And there are just so many, you know, plans and pictures, everything from the 1890s. But 1880 was like a vacuum. It was just like, you know, and uh, and I keep telling the story that I finally... Um, the, I know I know that there are certain historical ships that existed, and I finally found a place that had a like basically a brochure that they gave to the passengers online, a brochure that had been preserved, so that would show the deck plans of the ship. And it was on this like um like like naval memorabilia website, and it would cost me five hundred dollars, you know, to buy it. And I was like, you know what? No, uh, I was like. Now that I know it costs $500 and I know people cannot access it that easily, I am going to design my own ship based on what I know of ships from the earlier decades and ship that came a few years later. And if anybody wants to tell me I am wrong, they have to first pay $500 to get that little deck plan. <laughs> <laughs> and ships have different designs. You cannot say all ships have the same design. So I feel mine would not be far off. So, so it was like difficult to write because... Without the plan, I didn't even know where anybody was in relationship to anyone else. And for something like this, when everybody was like stuck together in a small space, you really needed to know where people were at all times. Or at least the author needed to know where people are at all times so that she could move pieces around, like who might have seen who, who didn't see who, you know. Um, so, um, so yeah, the, 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 part of the reason I also wanted this was because I enjoyed uh, Death on the Nile as much as anyone else so who reads mystery, uh, Agatha Christie's. And I was always like, that'd be so cool to do something like that. So now I have done something like that. Of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to add, because I wanted to know about the ship. And, you know, in the beginning, as as many books start kind of like this, you have the diagram of kind of where everyone was staying. But I was going to, I wanted to know, like, yes, did you, 
did you draw for yourself some kind of a visual aid? Like I was wondering, like yeah, like yeah, like how did you? I drew it on a piece of construction paper, and I had Mm -hmm. a couple of different uh, uh, deck plans from different ships, uh, actual ships stuck on the back, so I could turn it around and consult. And there are certain ones online that I consulted. also, as I was drawing it up, uh, so it's like on paper, and then I, you know, send PDFs to my publisher and say, "Could you like clean this up and, you know, professionally draft this?" And they did. It was turned out very nice. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because there are times when it's like, well, um, to get from here to here, or you have to go through this location to get there, and yes, and when you're when you're in a confined space, you need, like you said, as the author, you need to know where everything is at every right, time. Right. Like yes. anything you didn't know, for example, where the stairwell is so like you know like okay people going up and down the stairs you know who they might see and those uh, stuff like that yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, you know, sometimes it's one of those things where, yeah, you get to um, uh, try something new and, and sometimes it works, you know, and it works out, but it can be really difficult to do it as you're doing it <laughs> to write that. Um, so we've been talking about your book for a while and I probably could talk about this longer, but um, I will ask you, this book is just out, but are you working on, a, you know, the, the Lady Sherlock series is not ended, I'm going to guess, no, I, right? I, so, just, I just signed a, a contract to do books eight and nine. So uh, I am in the middle of working on book eight. Yes. Okay. Which is and are you- emphatically not set on a ship. <laughs> <laughs> They've gotten off the ship. Um, yes. And that was the other thing um, during this time period, which is great, is that like they're not only on the ship, but they can't really get a hold of anyone. They don't have a coroner, right? They can't. There's no uh, ship to land or ship to ship uh, telegraph. That was mm-hmm. that would not be available for like another uh Oh, a good many years uh, before they will have that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's all these kind of pieces where they're kind of stuck in this space and have to figure things out. And Charlotte also can't come out and just be like, hey, I am here. I'm going to tell you this. So has to figure out the ways in which she can um, reveal and get support from others on the ship to help her sort of solve this mystery. Right. Like there's but, all these lovely layers. Yes, but we we also but technologically they were advanced enough that you know once they reach port and it is like five days from Southampton to uh, Gibraltar. Uh, so once they reach port, they can immediately send out all kinds of you know cables going to different corners of the world, asking for information from Australia, from UK, from from elsewhere, and you know those would get there fast and come back fast. So um, I I think I think the existence of electricity and uh, telegraph was part of the reason I when I wrote my historical romances I also set them late in the 19th century and not much earlier when you still have to you know just basically like rely on letters <laughs> I was like oh technology yes so we've got more of Lady Holmes coming is there anything else that you're working on that you want folks to know about um I will be there. I was given another book in the in the contract. I say I was given because uh, the publisher said, we have this idea. Do you want to write it? And I was like, hey, why not? <laughs> I don't know whether I can talk about it yet because uh, uh, I haven't heard my publisher mention anything. But yes, I will be, um, you know, besides writing Lady Sherlock 8 and 9, I will be working on something else. So, you know, next time we talk, we might be talking about some non-Lady Sherlock stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it has been so 
wonderful talking to you about this book and this series. And I will say, um, for people who have not um, read anything in the series yet, you can jump in. I read number seven and I was able to jump in and had a great time with uh, Charlotte and her gang. Um, but there is, you can also go back and read one, two, three, yes. four, five, I, six. Uh, if, if you must, I feel seven is an okay point to jump in. It, it's weird. Like people have jumped in at various points and said, yeah, we managed to understand, you know, just fine and follow the plot. And But I think if you start from the beginning, you will get all the nuances of character development and, you know, and see like how things that were um, you thought was one way in, in, in this book may have turned out differently in a different book and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it just become a big overarching story. So, yes, I do think you can jump in through book seven, but I would also encourage readers to, you know, pick up with book one. Then you also, if you like it, you have more books to read. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I will say that, like, reading book seven, reading A Tempest at Sea made me want to go back because I did want to follow that arc. I'm like, how did we get to this point? And, and, and as I said, um, her mother is someone, you, you know, you always want to, like, just probably <laughs> slap. But I'm like, is this woman like this the whole time? Right. So there's all these little things that make you want to go back and start at the beginning as all good mystery series that you sort of enter in the middle do. Right. Oh, you want to go back and start at the beginning and then keep going. Um, so you can see how we got to where we were. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. <laughs> so, yeah. So, again, thank you so much for talking with me for New Books Network. Uh, Sherry Thomas, who is the author of the Lady Sherlock series, and we were talking about her latest in the series, A Tempest at Sea. Thank you very, very much, Rebecca, for having me. You have a lovely day. You too. <laughs>